Every woman's cycle is individual to them, right? This is why we say track your menstrual cycle and find your patterns. Uh, so say a woman knows that her key event happens on day 23 of her cycle and she always feels flat and has really kind of negative mood on that day. Well, there are things that we can do to mitigate that. Welcome to The Proof Podcast a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a longtime listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high fiber, plant rich diet for good long term health. And while I certainly believe in a food first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Today's episode is with Dr. Stacey Sims, a forward-thinking international exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist who aims to revolutionize exercise nutrition and performance for women. Recognizing the lack of studies including females and generalization of recommendations from studies of males, Dr. Sims has dedicated her career to understanding and communicating the sex differences in training and nutrition across the lifespan. 
In this conversation, we dive into these differences to help you better optimize your training and nutrition for general health and performance. As a scaffold for the conversation, after going through the major differences between male and female physiology, we discuss two different hypothetical avatars, a 30-year-old premenopausal woman and a 60-year-old postmenopausal woman, and what each should consider with regards to their nutrition and exercise based on their physiology at that stage of their life. It's certainly an information-packed episode, so a pen and notepad might be in order. With that, here's my conversation with Dr. Stacy Sims. I hope you enjoy it. If you do and can spare a minute, please leave a review on Apple or Spotify. This helps the show grow, which means we can continue to attract expert guests to come and share their knowledge with us. Stacy, Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines anomaly as something different, abnormal, peculiar, or not easily classified. Okay. And and you were once told women are an anomaly. How did this make you feel and how has this fueled your research career? When I was first told that women were an anomaly and results weren't actually included in a lot of the research studies, I was really kind of, well, I shouldn't say, pissed off is a, is a light word. But um, the way I grew up in my household, like, even though my father's military, there's always the option to do whatever you wanted within reason. So there were never any bounds of being a boy or a girl. So when I get into university and they're like, oh, well, women are anomaly. We don't really use the results. We just generalize from male data. I was like, wait a second. I know that I'm part of a crew team and all the women work really, really hard. And so now you're telling me that what we're doing might not be right for us, but there was no science to actually say what was right for us. And really when you get after the why and how and improve and match the work that we were doing, I was like, okay, something's got to give. So that was, gosh, I don't know. Yeah. A couple of decades ago that we all started this and, and it's still pervasive. I mean, my PhD students are still getting that, like, why do you want to study women? We don't know enough about men. Mm -hmm. So what was your, your, I guess, journey like into the academic side of things. I know that you've spent time at several universities, Stanford uh, being one of them. Um, you know, how did that sort of academic side of your career uh, play out? And, and what are the main questions that you've kind of looked to explore through your research? Yeah, I guess I should be full disclosure, I'm not a true academic. And I think that's why I get frustrated with academia because I'm not in the mindset to publish or perish. I want to answer questions and I want to disseminate it out. So, uh, you know, at Stanford, I had a really great mentor, a couple of great mentors actually, who were really good at doing sound research and then translating it out. So when I got to work with Marcia Stefanik, who's head of the Women's Health Initiative, and Craig Heller, who's human biology, a really fantastic thermoreg physiologist, and being able to put human performance with public health and then learn how to disseminate it out. And people were like, oh my gosh, how come we didn't know this information? I was like, because true academics kind of think that everyone reads their papers. 
but no one really expresses it. So I think my academic career was kind of on the edge where I never really fit in on either side. Like industry's like, oh, you're a professor. What do you know? You don't know how to push stuff out. And then people in academia are like, oh, well, you're not true to your word because you're not published or perish. So it's like trying to find that that niche. And it's very unusual. There's a few of us that I found that can actually do the science and translate it. Um, and I think that's a, a unique property within academia that's kind of missing. So, yeah, how did it drive? Trying to go in there and answer questions, but then also apply it as an athlete, as a coach, as a consultant, and be like, hey, these are the things that we know. These are the things that other colleagues are doing. So if we look at the whole body of research, this is probably best practice. Mm -hmm. What What are the the main questions that you wanted to answer specific to exercise and nutrition and, and how that may be different for female physiology and for optimizing health and performance for females? Um, I think the first drive was really about hydration, which we talked off air a little bit about. Um, knowing thermal loads are different. Women respond differently to thermal loads. And that drive was from racing Ironman in Kona. And looking at all of us who are coming from the Southern Hemisphere to go race in Hawaii conditions, and we're being told to drink X amount of sports drink every 15 minutes, and it just wasn't working. So it's like, wait, there's something here. We know about thermal load. We know about acclimatization. But again, it was based on male data. So how are we going to look at women knowing that they have a different response to thermal load? How are we going to use that to the advantage? And then as we start getting into it, it's like, well, protein, protein is the recommendations for women based on sedentary old men. So how does that translate to younger muscle and active women? So how much protein do we need? When do we need it? We know that in the luteal phase, there's a 12% increase in protein oxidation. So why is that not represented in guidelines? When we start looking at guidelines, like the carbohydrate guidelines, right? There are, um, I think, eight studies that were done on women and none of them have to do with carbohydrate intake. It has to do with amenorrhea, it has to do with bone health, but yet they're thrown in there with carbohydrate guidelines. So when you see three to four grams for light activity, it's like, really, what is that based on? It's based on male data. So it's just those basic guidelines through nutrition all the way through strength training, unpacking that and trying to really answer those questions or look at the case studies or the small in and outside of sport nutrition and outside of sports science data, pull it all together to get best practice recommendations specific for women. And so in, in 2016, you go on and you write raw. And I think you kind of alluded to this earlier that you don't sit in this kind of neat box of academia. Was Is that where raw came from? Was this, were you compelled to write this for a general audience so that information wasn't just hidden in journals and you could you know, reach that, that sort of uh, woman who is missing this information and without this information may not be optimizing her health and, and her performance? I wish I could take credit for that, but it really comes from my co-author, Celine Yeager. So she was involved in a lot of the field studies I was doing. I was working with her as a journalist, and she came to me um, at a sports conference where I started talking about the menstrual cycle. And she's like, one, you're the first woman who's ever talked about the menstrual cycle, any of these conferences. And two, over the years I've gotten to know you, we have to get this information out. So she pitched it to Rodell and came back as like, hey, I pitched this idea. And they said, let's go for it. I was like, what? Okay. 
And then as we started getting into it, I realized that, yeah, I know all this stuff. Celine knows it because I've been working with her, but my other teammates don't know anything about it and just coaches don't know about it. So Mm -hmm. you realize that in your little bubble, your bubble is really small. So yeah, when Roar came out, it didn't really take off until, I don't know, maybe a year later. And people were like, oh my gosh, there's so much information here. So, and we're, yeah, yeah, I guess that's kind of how it started. What do you think, I guess, the repercussions are of, I guess in general, what we're talking about is, you know, clearly you felt there was a lack of information specific to females and that's inspired your career from from everything that I'm hearing and, and have read. But what's what's the problem with extrapolating from studies that include men? Let's say someone's thinking that now. Is it that the protocols would just not be specific enough? Could it be harmful? Are um, athletes leaving performance on the table? Can you kind of, you know, summarize what, what are the repercussions of just studying men and then using that information to apply to women? Yeah, I mean, we can take it out of the biomedical construct, right, where we're seeing um, things like drug and drug metabolism for women. It changes according to the menstrual cycle. We also know that um, drugs stay for a longer period of time in women's systems. So we look at Ambien, right? And so when the medical society is like, hey, wait, we better start looking at sex differences. I'm like, hey, wait a second. If we look specifically at sex differences versus the epigenetic influences of hormones, sex hormones, we see that there's sex differences from birth. And how can we say that, you know, what we're doing from a training perspective with regards to sets and reps is appropriate for different muscle architecture in women that are less fatigable and have more protein for mitochondria development and use of free fatty acids. And you want to get the best out of your female athlete, but yet you're applying a protocol that is based on different architecture and different metabolism. And we look at high intensity work as well, right? Um, so what exactly are we trying to do? We know that women need more of a dose response and the older we get, the more of that stimulus we need. So we have to look at shortening up recovery days. We have to look at shortening up recovery intervals, but most people don't apply that. They don't look at it. So from general fitness all the way up to elite athlete, we're missing the mark. We don't know what women's performance potential is because we haven't done the protocols appropriate for them. We look everywhere from basic VO2 testing and lactate testing. Um, And we even look at things like the Bronco test that's used widely across the board for rugby. It's all based on male protocol, male physiology. And we don't know if that should be changing for women or not because it hasn't been tested. But from a physiological perspective, it makes sense that we need to tweak those protocols, not only based on muscle architecture and basic metabolism, but then we get into the epigenetic influences of progesterone and estrogen and how that changes things across the menstrual cycle or oral contraceptive pill use. So that's kind of the drive still. It's like, come on, we're looking at the Olympics and it's coming up and people are still driving and driving and driving, but we see women are getting injured, they're pulling out, they're getting red S. And so what's going on here with these protocols? We need to look and see training loads. I want to talk. make sure we talk about Red S. So let's put a, a pin in, in that and make sure we cover it. But why the 
the exclusion, I guess, historically, why the focus on studying males, part of me thinks immediately maybe it's like too hard basket. Maybe um, researchers are worried that females will fall pregnant or that these fluctuations in their hormones are another variable and make it harder to kind of interpret results. What are the, and I'm sure there's many reasons, which is why I'm asking this question to you because I'm sure you've thought of this, but why traditionally have we not seen many females involved in these studies? If we look back in time to when like scientific design started, we have the modernization of medicine, women were excluded from all of that. So women used to be the caregivers before we had the modernization of medicine, but then it came out like the assumption was women have smaller brains, so they're not as smart, so they're not going to be able to contribute. Women are delicate. They don't have high pain tolerance. So it wasn't necessarily about menstrual cycle fluctuations. It was the perception of women in general, that they were not adequate to be in the scientific community. So when we look at scientific design, the female environment is never really examined. So now that we're trying to get more women involved, those protocols and the study designs are still male-based. And we look at language, we look at some of the recruitment factors, and they're still very exclusionary. Hmm. So as we start getting into more the modern idea behind it, that's where people started using menstrual cycle as an excuse not to include women. And they use the menstrual cycle and estrus as a reason to exclude female rats. So we can go all the way back to rat data, cell data. It's always been cis male orientation because that's how the scientific and the medical community started. Mm-hmm. Kind of feels like a little bit of, of a human rights movement to ensure that the science is benefiting everyone, females, even you know minority groups, etc. Yeah, it is across the board. It's like you look at ethnic differences between uh, medical conditions and there's a very small subset, but that's not out there. We look at things like menopause experiences between African-American and Caucasian-American and they're different. Part of it's sociocultural, but also it's part of the symptomology that occurs. We look at um, inclusion in sport and training protocols. Those are different between ethnicities. And, and so when we start looking at medicine and outcomes for anyone other than a white person, they're poor outcomes. If we look at outcomes for anyone other than a white male, then they're poor outcomes. So it's just, it, it's pretty much invasive within everything that we know. So unpack it all and redo it all is going to take a massive systemic revamp, which I don't think anyone is willing to do. So we have to learn from what's already been done and acknowledge the fact that there is so many exclusionary aspects within it and start to build forward, have better scientific design, better inclusionary aspects, or physiologists to be working with sociologists to understand the culture and the language to be as on point as possible to get the right scientific design, get the right people into those studies to be able to disseminate it appropriately. Is it starting to change? Are you feeling a a shift within the research community? Uh, yes, but we still have a long way to go. I mean, I look over the past four or five years and we've had kind of the global aspect of female athletes starting to talk about their periods or starting to talk about how, you know, there's a, a lot of women that pulled out of the Olympics at the nth hour because it was a five year schedule schedule instead of a four year and they just were burnt out. You didn't see a lot of men pull out, but it was the women that were just so overtrained and overreached. And we started talking about that as well. So there is this uptick to really cohesively look at women in in scientific research. 
but there's still a lot of different voices within that of how it should be done. Mm-hmm. If a coach is is listening to this, and let's say they're a, a swimming coach, so an individual sport, or maybe even a basketball coach, and they're coaching a team of women, how important is it that they understand the differences between male and female physiology in order to kind of tailor the the training program that they're they're putting their athletes through? Uh, it's a big ask for everyone to understand it. And it's a big ask for everyone to try to tailor it. But what is not a big ask is to actually understand where your female athletes are, either from an oral contraceptions perspective or if they are um, naturally cycling where they are in their menstrual cycle and making those appropriate health questions so that you have the opportunity to see where you can push your athlete and where you need to pull back. And if you're looking at teens, right, so you don't make the judgment on if they're going to be on the start line or not on a day that your um, female athlete usually feels flat. So it's just bringing that awareness from a health perspective into the coaching environment, one, to reduce the taboo-ness, but two, to be able to be smarter about how you push and how you recover within those individual factors. Yes, the taboo-ness. I can imagine a, a coach, particularly a male coach, I'm projecting here onto a male coach, but I can imagine, I haven't been in this position, but feeling a little bit awkward uh, because of how society kind of has, has framed um, the menstrual cycle or period, feeling a little bit awkward speaking to their female swimmers or their basketball players about their period how can that conversation occur in a very professional healthy comfortable way for for the coach and also for for the athlete there are a couple of ways that we've instigated this from grassroots like kids who are 13 14 15 all the way up to professional athletes Um, we're finding that younger male coaches are more open to talking about it and they don't find it as much as a taboo. So we implement it as when someone comes to practice or someone shows up at the gym, you do a quick assessment of how do they sleep? Are they injured? How stressed they are? And then we put in a question about menstrual cycle, like, uh, what day of menstrual cycle are you, right? So it's just the awareness that people are aware, but it's not digging into it. Mm -hmm. So it becomes one of those normalizations in the conversation of we show up at practice, we find out our readiness to train. And part of the readiness to train is where we are in our menstrual cycle. Are we having heavy bleeding issues or not? That can be a separate conversation. Mm -hmm. For coaches who are not comfortable at all about talking, this is where tech comes into play. So we think see things like wild AI, we see things like fitter woman, where they have a coach's platform. So the coach opens it up and they can see where their players are or their athletes are on the menstrual cycle, oral contraceptive pill or IUD, whatever it is, if they have any symptomology, because the athlete is is, um, logging on their phone and it's connected to a coach's dashboard. So then the awareness is there, but it takes away that in-your-face conversation. So these are the two... I guess, best ways that we are able to really try to break that taboo without having that direct in-your-face conversation that makes people so uncomfortable. And we find that the more that it is within the teams and the players are talking about it, the coaches are aware about it, then it becomes a non-issue. It takes Mm -hmm. a bit of time, but it does become a non-issue. So that's 
that's kind of, I guess, the, the first step is having that data and understanding where the athlete is at in their cycle or are they using oral contraception, but then knowing what to do with that information. How, how does that affect um, exercise volume or intensity or modality or nutrition, et cetera? So um, I'm hoping that we cover some of that. Get into that, um, yeah. Yeah, shortly. And I, I have a couple of, of different sort of avatars that you and I have sp- I've spoken about that I think will be a nice way for us to step through this. I know that you like to do that in your work. Before we sort of get to there, you're well known for saying women are not small men. Yeah. And let's just double click on that and and high level here. You've you've spoken to a few things so far. But what is it that makes women from a physiological point of view different to men? You know, you've spoken to sort of differences in sex hormones, but is it more vast than that? Yeah, it starts in utero, actually. There are some really fantastic studies that look at stress and the way that a developing fetus responds to stress. And if a woman is under a lot of significant stress, either nutritional stress or just normal life stress, and it creates this higher stress environment for the fetus, the girl fetus will take that on board and become more stress resilient. The male fetus doesn't. And so we see a lot of issues that come with high stress with the development of a male fetus. So we know that there's that inherent. So what's happening, there's some actual genetic expression and things that are occurring when the baby is in utero. After birth, we see that, you know, um, there's differences, like I said, in muscle architecture, muscle metabolism. We see women have smaller lungs and heart, less blood volume, less um, hemoglobin. We see different uh, bone and biomechanical aspects that come into play. Onset of puberty is a massive switch where we see the epigenetic expression of testosterone that makes bones stronger in men. Um, they're leaner, they're uh, muscle I guess morphology changes. We see changes in the brain. Um, we see changes in mood. When we see what's happening with girls at the onset of puberty, we have the estrogen expression that creates a wider hip angle, wider shoulder girdle. We see changes in center of gravity. We see changes in mood. We see changes in body composition. And then it's topped off by getting a period. And we don't talk about that either. So then as we start going through, you know, what are these actual sex differences? It affects everything from like the heart and heartbeat. We know that there is a longer time between QRS um, intervals for women and it's longer. So when we look back at the basic algorithm for heart rate and heart rate variability, it doesn't take into account this true sex difference between heartbeats. So when we're looking at um, wearables, and we're looking at the algorithms that are used for wearables, they still aren't taking these true sex differences into effect. So then we can talk about what happens with the epigenetic exposure of estrogen progesterone in the menstrual cycle Mm -hmm. after the onset of puberty. Right. Yeah, I think people, having just heard you list off all of those differences, can probably now appreciate if you're looking at you know, a resistance training protocol and all of the subjects are males, it's difficult to extrapolate that to females. Are they going to respond in the same way when they have very different hormone profiles, different muscle architecture, differences in the the way their heart's functioning, et cetera? Um, Let's double-click on period. So what do we need to understand 
um, about the menstrual cycle in order to to then kind of think about um, changing a training program or nutrition um, at different stages uh, for for a woman who's in sort of the the pre menopausal phase of her life. Yeah, so if we pull back and I'll just give that brief textbook explanation of menstrual cycle, menstrual cycle length. So day one is the first day bleeding. Around day 13, you have a luteinizing hormone surge and then ovulation. After ovulation, so around day 14 or 15, we still then get into the high hormone phase, the luteal phase, which generally ends at day 28 when those hormones drop and the next period starts. When we look on a more granular aspect, of the menstrual cycle. We know that hardly any woman is a typical 28 day. So we see variations from 25 to 40 days and it's that low hormone phase that shifts. And the reason for the low hormone phase shifting is because the body is really trying to mature the egg and create a very robust stress resilient environment that will allow a fertilized egg to thrive. So when we look at things like uh, mood, ability to withstand high intensity, uh, even things like the immune system, we look at that low hormone phase and everything is on point to be very stress resilient. We know that women's immune systems are really good at fighting off virus and bacteria. But after ovulation, the body's like, well, we don't want to fight off sperm. So we're going to become more pro-inflammatory and fever response. So we see a higher amount of just systemic inflammation after ovulation. When we're looking at fluid and fluid balance, we see that there's a drop in the plasma volume after ovulation because of a switch in estrogen and progesterone. When we're looking at mood and sleep, we see that leading up to ovulation, sleep is pretty sound and pretty um, good with getting women into slow wave, deep reparative sleep. And right around ovulation, there's a dip in your core temperature. So there's a really good like amount of sleep that's happening with that dip in core temperature. But after ovulation, core temperature starts to come up and progesterone drives so many things. It changes um, vagal tone. So women have a really difficult time getting into parasympathetic responses. So they're more sympathetically driven. We see more and more awake and arousal episodes during sleep. REM sleep decreases, slow wave sleep decreases. And when we're looking at immune system, like I said, we have more pro-inflammatory. We also have an increase in protein oxidation. We have a decrease in fluid and fluid balance. We have a change in our heat tolerance and our heat load capacities. So across the menstrual cycle, there's two major um, time periods to really look at what's going on and how do we kind of leverage the way the body's responding in a natural standpoint to this basic reproductive function and use that to our advantage for training, not performance per per se, because we know from a vast majority of research that there's really no impact on that one point in time in performance because there are other things that come into play from a psychological and athletic skills standpoint. But when we're looking at training and we can look at hormones are low, body's really resilient to stress, we can load it up and recover well. Then after ovulation, when things are starting to, estrogen, progesterone are starting to come up, we have more pro-inflammatory responses, we can't access carbohydrate very well, our core temperature is elevated, probably not the time to to try to hit a PR in that high intensity. We have to look at um, 
what are we doing for reps and sets? If we're having such a massive inflammatory response, what kind of adaptations are we going to get? So when we start looking at, at those aspects, we can nail it down to improve the training potential, which then feeds forward to improving performance potential. Okay. I have a couple of questions about yeah. all of that. Firstly, can you just repeat the menstrual cycle? I just want to make sure everyone's clear about those different phases. Yeah. So day one to around day 13 or 14 is a low hormone phase called the follicular phase. In that you have the bleed phase, which can be five to seven days. And then you have the mid follicular phase where estrogen starts to come up right before ovulation. Then you have the ovulatory phase, which of course is ovulation. After that, you have the luteal phase, which is early and late luteal phase. Late luteal phase is about the four or five days before the next period starts. And this is when the hormones start to drop and we see the biggest inflammatory response. Because mm -hmm. um, the body's like, now I need to shed tissue. I better uh, you know, really create an inflammatory response to get rid of it. So there's one, two, three, four, five distinct areas within the menstrual cycle. But for just basic concept, we have low hormone follicular, high hormone luteal phase. Got you. And I think you answered one of my other questions, but I, you spoke there about performance. So there, there really is no benefit to, let's say you have someone has a particular single event that they know they have in six months time. There, there's... There's not going to be some athletes who are at a particular stage of their cycle who will be at a an advantage over other athletes who are at a different stage of their cycle. So every woman's cycle is in, individual to them, right? This is why we say track your menstrual cycle and find your patterns. Uh, so say a woman knows that her key event happens on day 23 of her cycle and she always feels flat and has really kind of negative mood on that day. Well, there are things that we can do to mitigate that. So we can look at using more branched chain amino acids, increasing protein intake, increasing carbohydrate availability, really looking at hydration status leading up to that. So that levels that hormone playing field. And then we have to have that positive self-talk where there's no hormonal effect according to what we know on performance. So this is where those athletic skills of positive self-talk to eliminate that perceived advantage or disadvantage because you know maybe someone has a really good day on day 23 regardless of what they do on their menstrual cycle but day 24 they're really flat so mentally they're like yes okay but then also we know over the course of six months of training we can have irregularities and ovulatory um, cycles we can see shifts in um cycle length and you know, right before Kona Ironman, I get so many emails from women who are like, I don't know what happened, but I feel like my period is going to start on race day. And usually it doesn't, it, it, you know, it's a week out or it's late. It's like, it's okay. It's because you're tapering, your body's under different stress and we want your period to come on race day, or we want it to come the day before, or even the day after, but we can work with that. As long as you know, we can work with that to make you capable of hitting whatever PR you want to do on that day. Is it common for women to feel low energy the week before their period? That was something that was sent in to me by, by numer numerous women when I um, let the community know that we were doing this episode. It is absolutely normal. 
And this is where we're looking at, okay, if you were to look at the menstrual cycle from a training periodization scope, we would say that week before your period, we want to use that as deloading. Because this, again, like I said, you have a lot of um, neurotransmitter changes. So you have um, less density and activation of your serotonin receptors after they've already been heightened by estrogen. So people start to feel flat and anxious. We have fluid shifts because of the way progesterone affects aldosterone. So you start to feel a little bit bloated. Um, definitely less power because we have changes in central nervous system. Um, I mean, we have increased amount of protein oxidation, so it's harder to recover. And a lot of women in those five days leading up to the period have really disrupted sleep because the sleep architecture changes. So they get less slow wave sleep. Part of that also we're trying to tease out is, okay, if this is natural and they're getting the readout of they've had poor sleep, how is that affecting their mood? Or if it's natural and they're told this is normal, you didn't have a poor sleep, then would that positively affect their mood? So that's that psychological profile as well. But in general, yes, the few days before your period start, a lot of women do have low energy. And all of this information that we're talking about, I know you've mentioned Kona and I've mentioned athletes, but would you say that this is important for uh, all women, even those that are just sort of doing recreational exercise, important information that can help them feel better? Yeah, I tend to tell people that if you exercise on purpose, regardless of what your perception of level is, if you exercise on purpose, you're an athlete because no one's going to get up at five o'clock and go to the gym and hammer themselves for no particular reason, right? So if we're looking at just general working mom who has to get up early, go to the gym, do whatever, be home in order to be back before the kid wakes up, get the kids ready, get the kids out the door, then get to work. You want that one hour session to really work for you. So if we're looking at how are we maximizing our fitness capability, then let's work with our physiology. And I'm not telling people that they have to work out every day. It's like, okay, well, let's look what works in your schedule. And say you love this boot camp, but you realize that you've been thrashing yourself at this boot camp all the time and you're not seeing any results. Well, maybe it's because you happen to be going to the most of the boot camp classes in those, you know, high, high hormone days where you're not going to get the best adaptations. So let's revisit what you're doing according to how you feel and your cycle to try to maximize your efforts because you are putting in that effort. <laughs> okay, working with your physiology to maximize your your uh, your effort. Let's go through that and use these these two kind of av avatars. Uh, one being a thirty year old woman, um, and the other being a six year old woman in in sort of post menopause phase of her life. And we might try and include perimenopause in in that as well. So the first one here that I have is Alex. She's a 30 year old woman, not on oral contraception, um, not a professional athlete, but as you just said, then still an athlete, she trains four or five times a week. And her, her goal is to be strong, healthy, and quote unquote, toned. I pulled this from some of the questions that were submitted to me, um, which I guess means lean muscle without too much body fat. I think that's what she's going for. So my first question here is for Alex, this 30-year-old woman. How does she go about assessing her current sort of health and status, her fitness, whether her hormone profile is optimal, et cetera? Okay. So 
The first thing is tracking menstrual cycle. So, you know, find out what day one is and find out actually how long your cycle is. Along that, you can use an app. You can also use the old fertility method of basal body temperature. So you can see where your core temperature drops and then surges. So that indicates an ovulatory cycle. Um, once you are understanding how long your cycle is and if it changes, then we also want you to kind of keep track of your sleep and your training according to where you are in your menstrual cycle. Cause you'll start to see patterns. You'll start to understand the days you feel really good and the days maybe not so much. The best way I can describe of the kind of epiphany that happens there is now women feel empowered instead of doing self blame of, I didn't sleep well enough. I didn't push hard enough. Oh, I shouldn't have gone to that class. I was too tired. They started to see these patterns and like, I didn't do well in that hot yoga class or I didn't do well in that um, boot camp class because it's on day 25 of my cycle. And every time I hit day 25, I'm really flat. So next time I'm not going to do it on that day. I'm going to do it on day 18 where I feel fantastic. So I can really push and get that training adaptation. So it's understanding your own patterns within your menstrual cycle. If you really want to dig down and see um, like what your hormone profile is, if you are not at, get at risk of low energy availability, we say get an estrogen or estradiol test on day two and a progesterone test on day 21, because these are the two metrics that will give you an indication of what estrogen and progesterone are doing and what the ratios are. What day was that for progesterone? Day 21. Day 21. So day two for estradiol, day 21 for progesterone. Progesterone, yep. Okay. Yep. What about testosterone? How how important is testosterone for a 30-year-old woman? It's the under-discussed but pretty important hormone. We know that testosterone is pretty stable through a woman's life and has a slow decline like men, but we also see a lot of perturbance in it. Um, so just having tr keeping track over the course of time will give you a better snapshot. So if you are starting to feel really flat and you're like, what's going on? And nothing, you're not in low energy availability, your estrogen and progesterone look fine. Then we say, you know, really get a, or a testosterone test and let's see what's going on. You should fall within a, a normal range. Um, and then you can keep that. And then you can see, am I building it or am I, am I not? Because that one point in time isn't going to tell much. We need to look at the trends. Sure. Um, and the day two estradiol test and day 21 progesterone, what are the, the types of results that would be a bit of a, a red flag where you'd be like, okay, there's, there's something that maybe isn't quite right here? Yeah. So for estradiol, there's a baseline level where we know that it is still within the normal range for follicular. So we expect it to be low, but we don't expect it to bottom out, which we see in um, postmenopausal women, amenorrheic women, um, because then this is an indication of something's going on from an ovarian standpoint. For progesterone, if we don't see an elevation in progesterone that indicates that it is starting to peak, then we know it's an anovulatory cycle. And of the... 12 to 14 cycles that a woman will have in a year, three or four of them are going to be in ovulatory. So if you get like a really low progesterone, then get it retested the next month and see what happens. Uh, a lot of the norms within those ranges are 
pretty good and standard for active women. When we start to see really significant perturbances within estrogen and progesterone, then we go, okay, well now we need to get a luteinizing hormone test. Because if we don't see a pulse and we don't see a surge in luteinizing hormone, then we know that there's a low energy um, issue here. And we want to stop that before it is full relative energy deficiency in sport. Gotcha. Yeah, that was, I was going to ask you that. So to diagnose red S, um, do you, do you need that blood test and that super low estradiol level, or can it, can it be diagnosed just through, I guess, the history of the, the person knowing that they've lost their period among other things? Yeah. So when we're looking at relative energy deficiency in sport, there's so many things that go in in it. So we see a psychological component where there's lots of depression and anxiety. We see a lot of gut issues, um, sudden uh, incidents of IBS, or, you know, just people think they need to go gluten-free or FODMAP because they're starting to have a lot of GI issues. We see cardiovascular missteps. So there's higher inflammatory markers. So CRP is elevated. And then we also see the tipping point of menstrual cycle irregularities. So you might be uh, you, regularly irregular, meaning that you're still getting your cycles, but there's been a change within your own cycle. So that's a red flag for us. When we start to see some of those, we're like, okay, first, instead of blood tests, let's try to look at nutrient timing. How are you fueling for your workouts and how are you recovering from them? Because this is a sex difference that is often not really discussed, where women don't do well in fasted training. We see that a lot of women who do fasted training end up with greater fat accumulation, higher cortisol levels, which feeds forward to greater um, inflammatory responses, poor sleep, and it's a cascading effect. Mm -hmm. We know that women do better with some food on board. So it doesn't mean you have to get up at 4.30 and have a big breakfast before you work out at 5.30, but you have something on board. That signals the brain that there's some nutrition coming in. And there are two areas in the brain in the hypothalamus for women that are sensitive to nutrition, nutrition status, where there's only one in men. That's why we see all this fasting data coming out of being so spectacular. Again, it's from male data. So when someone is starting to experience those menstrual cycle irregularities, we're like, okay, it's, a, it's an energy status. So let's really nail down that nutrition in and around training. Get your body out of a breakdown state, because if you delay food after exercise, then your body is staying in a catabolic state and your brain perceives that as low energy. Even if you think you're eating enough calories, but you're not eating them in the right time during the day, your body can still fall into this perception of low energy availability. First, we get that nutrient timing going. We see how that works over the next two to three weeks with regards to energy, to sleep. And then we see how that feeds forward into subsequent cycles. If we're still not having any luck, that's when we start really digging into the endocrine, looking at estrogen, progesterone, luteinizing hormone pulse, all of that cascade to then really nail down how far down the track are we with low energy availability and red S and how are we going to pull you out of it? How equipped is the average endocrinologist to kind of help someone go through this? Is it an endocrinologist that someone would go and see to get that that sort of level of hormone profiling done? Um, what are your recommendations? If someone's listening now and thinking, yeah, 
you know, some, some of what Stacey's talking about here is affecting me. I need to dig into this. How do they dig into it? Who is the type of person that can help them, help guide them? Of course, you've got a lot of resources, I know, but if they were wanting to go and see a, a kind of doctor in their local area. Yeah, um, it's hard because there are a lot of sports physicians who still aren't acutely aware of some of the changes. So often what we do is we get a sports physician to refer to an endocrinologist that specializes in fertility. Because if you're specializing in fertility, you understand the pulses of the hormones. And so when you start to see irregularities, then they can report back, okay, this is what's going on. And there's some menstrual cycle dysfunction. If you just go to a basic endocrinologist, who doesn't have the depth of understanding of how all these hormones interact then you might not get an, an accurate diagnosis or the kind of help that you really need. And red S, so relative energy deficiency syndrome, that's what it stands for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. So the amenorrhea or the irregular periods that you just spoke about there is sort of the body's response to not having sufficient energy. So essentially um, in that state, it goes into almost like survival mode that it's it's not really in the uh, appropriate physiological state to be thinking about reproduction. Exactly. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Yep. And what are some of the risks of that if you're in that? What are some of the, I guess, medium to long-term risks for a woman if she finds herself in that position? Yeah, unfortunately, it's still that pervasive myth in the sporting communities that if you lose your period, then you're training hard enough and you're ready to go. Um, But what we see is if you are amenorrheic defined by three months of no period, then you are increased for bone stress fractures, increased risk of um, inflammatory responses, poor cardiovascular function, um, poor recovery, and then we see a plateau and a decrease in performance. So long-term health risks are reversible if you are willing to really step back and be like, okay, I need to take care of my nutrition to get my um, hormones back in sync. Because we say, you know, a period is an ergogenic aid if you're naturally cycling because it's the first thing that will go kind of to the wayside when there's a misstep between energy in, energy out, or your stress. So we closely monitor it Um, not only in elite athletes, but recreational female athletes as well. We've done a couple of studies and we've seen up to 55% of recreational female athletes are in low energy availability, subclinical, and they're starting to have menstrual cycle irregularities, but they're like, oh, I'm stressed. That's what it is. But they're putting themselves into a higher risk for low bone density, poor um, muscle function, and when they hit peri and postmenopause, a rapid loss of lean mass. Do you have a sense for, if we're talking about the recreational um, sort of athlete here, female athlete, do you have a sense for the contribution from training, whether this is, is it an overtraining problem or more so an underfueling and um, women just not being aware about, you know, what types of nutrients and how much they need to eat to be able to um, to complement the exercise that they're doing or is it sleep what, what what contribution would each of those be playing to red syndrome? That's a hard one to tease out. I know Trent Stellingworth put out a paper recently looking at overtraining versus red S and how similar they are. If we're looking at uh, recreational athletes, 
we've done kind of the combination of transdisciplinary looking at sociocultural aspects and the physiological. And right now, because there's such misinformation through the internet or word of mouth that there are so many different diet trends, that tends to be the big influence on what's happening in recreational female athletes, where they're doing a lot of intermittent fasting or they're doing a lot of exclusionary diet stuff or um, you know, they're like, oh, I'm FODMAP, so I can't have this, which falls into the exclusionary. And then that kind of compounds the effect. They're also trying to do a lot of high intensity work now, a lot of resistance training and high intensity work because those are the buzzwords. And so there's just this significant misstep in understanding the energy needs for getting adaptation and getting what you want from your fitness with and the energy needs for staying healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, what women don't like to hear is that in order to get those adaptations, you need abundance, right? You want to build lean mass. You need abundance of calories because your body isn't going to encourage to build lean mass, which is metabolically hungry. If you yourself are not giving your body what it needs, just to have basic endocrine health. So that's the, I guess the idea behind like, what is it? What are the tipping points? You know, it's it's hard to really tease out, is it the high intensity and resistance training or is it the diet trends? Because both of them come together because they're both the buzzwords and we're finding a lot of women are following that. And there's just a significant misstep of information. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, You'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. 
You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. What about body fat percentage and and, and where that sh- you know should be or what's healthy, what's realistic? So in this sort of avatar I mentioned there, this idea of quote unquote being toned, um, and I think that's that's you know something that many women are sort of aspiring to. Um, what does that actually mean? What is healthy for a thirty-year-old woman from a body fat percentage, and how may that differ to a thirty-year-old man? Yeah, so we look from a healthy range. It depends not only on like total body fat, but where it's distributed. So a woman who is thirty might have twenty-five percent body fat, but it's all lower body, and that's not as harmful as if she is twenty-five percent body fat and it's all in the abdominal region. So we have to look at at morphology and you know where is that that being stored. Um, we say that women who are healthy around thirty, it's between twenty-two and twenty-six percent body fat is a healthy range. But for men, it's between 16 and 20%. So when we start to see things like um, athletes are like, oh, you know, I dropped down to 12% body fat for my races. It's like, okay, well, we know that there's a lot of misstep and you're right on the cusp of being sick because your body percent is a little bit too low. We like to see women periodize their body composition as well. Um, start heavier at the beginning of any kind of race season or any kind of competition season so they can afford to lose it as high intensity stress comes on and stay healthy. Same with men. But for women, we really want to push the issue that you can't stay at one particular number because the body isn't an algorithm. It mm. fluctuates and it's healthy to do that. Right. Is is that something you would encourage people to keep an eye on with a DEXA scan? For DEXA, it's more about bone health and body fat distribution. Instead of investing in a DEXA, um, it's more about the kind of resistance training you're doing. Because we know that to really shift that abdominal fat, women need to lift heavy in the power range when they're premenopausal, because that really helps mobilize abdominal fat better than any kind of cardiovascular aspect. Um, as we get older in peri and postmenopause, it's a different story of how we mobilize that abdominal fat or prevent visceral fat from um, actually coming on. Uh, so when we talk about recomp, it's like, okay, fuel, resistance training, and then there can be blocks of time where we're doing a slight calorie restriction to really recomp the body. But then you want to phase calories back in again because we want to periodize. And we can see that, you know, naturally your body puts on more fat when it's cold and wintry as part of survival, but also circadian rhythm and darkness. And then over the summer, your body will naturally lose more fat because you're exposed more to light. And that's normal. But we can kind of maximize those effects by how we're training and how we're treating our bodies. Hmm. Recomp, if someone's not familiar with that term, what does that mean? Body recomp. So that's increasing lean mass and decreasing body fat. 
Okay, so coming back to Alex here, yeah. um, what what would a week of training for someone like her, recreational, just wanting to be fit, strong, get a bit leaner, what would what would a, a kind of training program look like in terms of the different modalities or type of exercise, sort of frequency, duration, and how might that change, I guess, week to week based on her menstrual cycle? Okay, so if we look at the first week of the menstrual cycle, um, I'm going to just do an assumption that she doesn't have any really bad cramping. Or maybe we could say the first two days, she has really bad cramping and doesn't feel like doing much. So in those first two days, a lot of women are like, Ugh. and if you do a couple of 20 second intervals, so not Tabata, but really high intensity, full gas kind of sprint interval training, and it can be running up your stairs just so you get those 20 second bursts. It creates a growth hormone and anti-inflammatory response, which then feeds forward to reducing cramping. And if you do that for your cycles, your body starts to learn that we don't have to have as much intensity of the cramping and inflammation. So it's a good modality to kind of get through the cramping and still kind of feel like you're working on your fitness. On day three, still bleeding, but she feels fantastic. So day three, all the way up to ovulation, this is where we can hit it hard. So we're looking from a resistance standpoint. Uh, we look at two to three times a week of compound movements. So one of those can be more Olympic lifting and power-based movements. Two of those can be, um, you know, a total body where we're looking at sets of uh, or sorry, reps of six to eight. Mm -hmm. So we're looking again in that power phase because we're trying to get that strength and speed because this is where the body really can take that on. Um, from an endure or from a cardiovascular standpoint, this is where you can also do high intensity interval training, but real high intensity interval training where your intervals are 80% or more max. You're hitting, you know, one to three minutes for your interval. You could also do some sprint interval training if you wanted, but it's all about that top end quality and it's not doing it every day. So we're looking at, you know, two or, you know, two to three lifting sessions that are properly designed for power. And you can look at two at the most three high intensity sessions and you can back that up after you're lifting if you want or before you're lifting if you're doing sprint interval. So it's not a lot of time, right? And then after ovulation, we start to look more from an aerobic capacity standpoint. So this is where your lifting becomes more total body, but you're falling into maybe four sets of eight, no more than eight. Um, from a, a cardiovascular standpoint, you can start looking at steady state work. So you're doing five or so minutes of steady state work. And then about the five days before the period starts, this is where we look at deloading where you don't want to disrupt your pattern that you have during your week of going to the gym and when you go to the gym. So this is where we look at technique under the bar, working on drills, working on mobility, uh, doing a lot of recovery modalities so that you are working with the fact that your immune system has changed, your neurotransmitters are making a little bit more tired, your body's in a breakdown state and an inflammatory state. So let's work on that technique. Let's work on the cognition. Let's work on the skills. So then when we hit it hard in the next follicular phase, that feeds forward into better lifting technique, better running technique. Got you. Okay, great. So just to summarize that, you had day one, two, when there may be cramping, that's util utilizing that sort of hit 
tool, that 20-second hit, proper hit protocol. Mm -hmm. Then you had day three to ovulation, which is where your training intensity goes up, you're hitting it a a bit harder, Um, that resistance training in that sort of six to eight rep range. And I'm assuming that you're choosing a weight such that when you get to six to eight reps, you only have a few in reserve. Is that kind of the goal there? Actually trying to get to fatigue in that. Okay. Because if so, we look after ovulation, we're hitting the eight. That's where you have a few in reserve. Okay. But we're really trying to get to that failure for a little bit of hypertrophy, but just that neuromuscular connection mm. for stronger strength and power. Okay. So you're working really hard there. Intensity's up. After ovulation is when the intensity comes off. It's more sort of aerobic and you've got four sets of eight in terms of resistance training but you have a few reps in reserve steady state cardiovascular training and then five days before period starts is when you're deloading and really taking taking the foot off the accelerator the intensity comes down if alex is thinking i usually do functional training and and you use the word real hit there and I had a yeah. bit of, I had a bit of a chuckle on the inside. So, um, and and I'm pretty familiar with the, this sort of hit literature, and I've always um, chuckled myself at how different the protocols are in the literature versus, say, sometimes how we see it in the community. Um, yeah, is there a is there a problem if Alex said, look, you know, I I just go and do a 45-minute sort of functional HIT training session four or five times a week. Um, Would there be a a sort of problem with doing that versus what you've just put forward? Not really a problem, but you're not maximizing what you can get out of it. If you are looking from the social construct of, I want to go to these classes because I see my friends, I know the instructor, it's a time in my diary where it's just me and I can relax. Remember that you are paying for this class, so you want to make it work for you. So if it's a 45-minute boot camp functional training type thing, you can change your weights to make them lighter or heavier. You can change the intensity of the sprints that they have you do to work according to your cycle, Mm -hmm. right? Bear in mind also, the reason why I want her to track her cycle first is so that she can see what days she feels really, really powerful and strong, and which days maybe not so much. So she can work that in too. Because I've just given like the general schematic of how we work with the immune system and metabolism and stuff. But knowing that some women feel super fantastic right around ovulation and other women feel flat for a couple of days and then they feel bulletproof. Same with a few days right before their period starts. Those hormones have already dropped, just haven't started bleeding yet. And so they feel fantastic. Use that to your advantage as well. So it's that individual scope within it that you're putting into that generalization. And so that also comes into the classes that you're already going to, because I don't want to take away someone's soul food of socialization and having fun and that kind of stuff. But within that class, use it to your body's advantage. Just don't go, oh, okay, we're doing lots of box jumps or box step ups with a lightweight. It's like, okay, I know I can hit it hard, so I'm going to use twice the weight that they're recommending, and I'm going to do maybe three less reps. Mm -hmm. So really, you're still working within the class confines, but you're working for your own body. Right. Yeah, I must say I usually 
train in a kind of standard gym environment. But over summer, I was down visiting my brother and I joined into some of these kind of community-based classes. And I, I did find the community, the social aspect, really enjoyable. So I can see how that is a, a draw card. Um, it's motivating, yeah. It is, and it can, yeah. I can see how it can really help with adherence for a certain sort of type of, of personality who may not otherwise get into the gym by themselves and maybe finds that mundane or intimidating. Yeah. Um, it's that accountability factor of showing up for your friends and you're all right. like in it together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so I mentioned that in this sort of theoretical example of Alex that she did want to build strength. But let's say, for example, um, Alex said to you, I really enjoy yoga and, and Pilates. Um, would that be enough resistance to, to help her build strength and reduce her risk of things like osteoporosis and sarcopenia later in life? I'm going to say no. D despite all the people who rave about yoga and Pilates, they're good for muscle control and people are like, oh, Pilates is so strong. You know, I, my abs hurt. It's really good core strength. Yes. But when we're looking at strength for life and we want to build that strength for life, we have to get that neuromuscular response of nerves coming down, having a lot of acetylcholine cross that gap junction, innervating a whole bunch of fibers to have a really strong contraction and getting that response that is going to enable the body to withstand um, going through peri and postmenopause because you're going to have that neuromuscular response. Uh, when we're looking from a power perspective and really working in power training, we know from a lot of Brad Schoenfeld's work that women do better in the power-based training regardless of what age they are. It's just when we're looking at that, you know, sixes rep range, almost a failure, that works with the recovery aspect that women's muscle needs from the fatigability aspect. So they get more strength and they also get some hypertrophy that works in the toning as well. Um, I tell people yoga is great, but we don't use it as like the primary means of building strength. We look at it as parasympathetic activation. We look at it as something that you love. Pilates once a week, sure, but you can compound that with some sprint intervals in the evening or something like that. Do women or are women able to handle more volume than men? That's something that I've heard and, and I've always been interested in, in asking someone like you. Can, can women do more sets and, and perhaps have greater frequency in, in terms of training a particular muscle group? Yes, absolutely. So we look at fatigability. We also look at the muscle metabolism and women's bodies are designed to be very endurant. So they can take on more volume. Um, but then when we start looking at the volume, we also have to look at that dose response too, right? That is, I was talking about earlier, like women are tending to have to have more of a dose to get the similar response that men have. So volume comes into play there. Like if we're looking at building strength and um, we're going head to head with a male partner, relative of course, right? So women are going to have to do a little bit more in order to have the same outcomes. Right, and forgive me if I, if I uh, missed this earlier, but in that sort of day three to ovulation period where the intensity goes up and it's sort of six to eight reps getting you know all the way to fatigue, is there a, a goal in terms of sets per muscle group? 
Oh, it's the same adage of the three to five, you know, three to five sets, three to five minutes recovery, right? Um, yeah. And that's something else a lot of women don't understand when they're just starting to get into the gym because they are doing a lot of superset stuff. They're not actually sitting down and letting the neuromuscular system recover. Is there any reason at all for Alex to be scared of resistance training? I think we're kind of moving away from that, but five, 10 years ago, there was perhaps a little bit of stigma around women lifting heavy weights. You're talking about power. You're talking about six yeah. reps, which is not a lot of reps. We're talking heavy load here all the way for t to fatigue. Is there any reason for her to be worried about that? No. What I think the big misconception is women are going to get bulky, right? First of all, we need to phase into being able to lift that kind of load with proper technique because we don't want people getting injured. But when we look at the bulk factor, uh, which I think is the worry for so many women, I just want to be toned. I want long, lean muscles. I don't want to get bulky. Um, unless you eat a lot, you're not going to get bulky because we don't have as much testosterone that's going to induce that bulkiness. Estrogen is actually our testosterone. And we see perturbations in estrogen as it goes because progesterone counters estrogen. So if we're really trying to build lean mass, we have a short window to do it, but you were not going to get bulky. And as soon as you add any kind of cardiovascular work, that, that true high intensity work, it dampens that bulk effect. Mm -hmm. So there isn't any worry for women to get into the gym. Um, perception of bulk is also different too. Like mm -hmm. someone might say that I'm bulky and I'm like, really, I'm not, I'm not bulky at all, but I just have muscles that show and it looks like I work out in the gym. People are like, oh, wow, you're really bulky. I'm like, mm, no. So it's that perception as well. What if Alex fell pregnant? Oh yeah. So I'm, I'm assuming Yay. that at, at some point, yes. Congratulations, Alex. Yeah. I'm assuming that at, at some point in time, her, her exercise regime perhaps needs to be modified during pregnancy and all the, the kind of postpartum period, what would that look like? Um, so the biggest thing that women need to be aware of when they become pregnant is taking care of pelvic floor, like work with a pelvic floor specialist early on. So you can understand that pelvic floor control. It's so important in late stages of pregnancy and early postpartum. Uh, with regards to lifting in aerobic capacity, anaerobic capacity, your body's going to put on its own limits. It's really, really hard to hit high intensity when you're pregnant because your body's just like, mm, yeah, not happening. Um, but don't be afraid to keep doing what you're doing. And you're going to find like if you're used to doing snatch, your bar path is going to change. So maybe we're not doing snatch with the bar. Maybe we're doing snatch with kettlebell instead. Um, so there are those modifications. And as you get uh, more and more into your pregnancy, you're going to find things that are comfortable and find things that aren't. So each pregnancy is a little bit different. In the postpartum period, this is something that hasn't really been talked about a lot, um, but one, we have to make sure pelvic floor health is there. And this is something that a lot of women are unaware of, but there are some really good um, apps out there that address it now. So one that I love is Buff Muff, which I kind of laugh about. <laughs> um, but it was specific because women have a lot of postpartum issues with pelvic floor that can last for years on end. Mm -hmm. um, and it also depends on what kind of pregnancy you had. Don't be in a rush to lose that post-pregnancy or that pregnancy weight because it does come off with breastfeeding. It's really important to treat uh, a vaginal birth or a C-section as an injury. 
So you need to phase out of that injury in slow steps, but it doesn't mean giving up everything. It means, okay, I've been in this different physiological state for almost a year. So now I need to make those small steps to come back. Mm. Yeah, I think, or I imagine in the age of social media and seeing how other people are bouncing back, it might put a bit of pressure on some people and perhaps lead to comparison. Yes, and it's not the thing to do. Mm. You don't know what happened during the pregnancy. Uh, I always use my story as an example. I had um, really, really bad vomiting and morning sickness through my entire pregnancy. So I ended pregnancy lighter than my race weight. And so as I'm going through my pregnancy, people are like, oh my God, you look so fit. You look great. You look awesome. I'm like, I can't eat. I'm vomiting every day. I've been in the ER on IV drips, you know, quite a few times during my pregnancy. So when I had Jera and you look three or four weeks later, I look like I bounced back. But I hadn't. I had lots of problems, but from the outside, I looked like I was back to being my athletic self. But that's because I didn't gain that much weight, but I didn't have muscle function. Um, I tore hip labrum. So there are lots of things. So it's that comparison thing and that pressure where I want women to just take a step back and say, okay, well, each pregnancy is different. My body is different, even if this is my second or my first. And again, I just have to look at how am I going to recover from this, from this injury perspective? And it takes about a year. It takes about a year to come back to where you were pre-pregnant with regards to um, pelvic floor function, mechanics, biomechanics, all of those things. Did you return to, to racing after your pregnancy? Uh, I ended up with a total hip replacement. So I didn't really get back into racing until we moved back to New Zealand. And I was like, okay, for the first year we're here, I'm going to do all the local races because I used to do them. So it's like a half marathon up and around the mount, which is the only hill here. And it was a 70.3 and all these splash and dashes. And I didn't really enjoy it. So then I stopped racing. I was like, you know what's more fun? Lifting, gravel riding, hanging out with friends, being a mom, doing the stuff. Yeah, Kind of lost the love for racing. Yeah. yeah, that's okay. Um, your your accent actually, there's a little bit of a twang there. So are you are, are you originally? This is a bit of a sidebar, but are you originally from New Zealand, and then you went to America, no. or where's that no. accent from? Uh, I am a U.S. Army brat, so I grew up in the Netherlands. Spent formative childhood years there. We moved back to San Francisco, and San Francisco is is what I call my hometown because even after I like I went to high school in San Francisco, and then I went away for uh, undergraduate and master's degree, and then moved back to San Francisco. Then I came to New Zealand, was here for almost ten years, then moved back to San Francisco, right. <laughs> and then moved back to New Zealand right before COVID hit. Mm-hmm. Okay, one more question about pregnancy. So. The the during pregnancy, you said, you know, um, Alex could continue with her strength training. Is there any issue with the kind of um, six to eight rep range and going to complete fatigue, or is that just something that um, is is like, is it a myth that you you can't train as heavy and as intense while you're pregnant? Uh. If I were to put a professional medical hat on, I'd say, yes, there is a problem with it. But when we put our like physiological and athletic hat on, 
Um, no, because again, the body's going to tell you when you need to stop. So we find that a lot of athletes who want to keep training hard, they're doing it on a rating and perceived exertion instead of a, a actual workload or weight load. So we work to a specific RPE and that way they're still working at a capacity that is going to generate what we call more maintenance training rather than build training. So you want to try to maintain what we have. We're not trying to build during pregnancy. Right. So it's not about sort of setting new PBs no. during that stage. Is there anything else here before we move to nutrition that you would want Alex to, to consider with regards to her exercise? Oh, yeah. No, not really. I mean, when we look at it from like that health perspective and menstrual cycle status, it's like you stay on top of menstrual cycle status. That's your, your really good indication of health and adaptation. Okay, let's slide over to nutrition. Okay. Uh, let's say that Alex is a blank canvas. She's willing to, to just follow whatever nutrition advice you give her. Where would you start? What would you want her to consider with regards to her nutrition to complement that, that exercise that you just uh, walked us through? Uh, first, I want to instill the 80-20 rule. So 80% of the time we're spot on with the things that we want to do. And then 20% of the time without guilt is when we're having fun with life where you might have wine, you might have chocolate, you might go out for indulgence. There's no such thing as a cheat meal, none of that stuff. Like I want to remove all of those boundaries that get stuck in people's heads. Then the next thing would be really looking at when is she training? Is she training first thing in the morning? Is she training in the evening? And how are we going to fuel for that? So if she's training... Uh, in the gym, resistance training first thing in the morning. I want her to have around 15 grams of protein before she goes in because that 15 grams of protein is going to feed forward to better epoch and better uh, adaptations after the resistance training. After her training session, she has breakfast. She has her real food. She has a real breakfast. And then we're looking at general doses of protein throughout the day. So what does that mean? Is she vegan? Is she not? So we're just trying to hit around that 30 grams at each meal, 15 grams at each snack. And then we look at no food after dinner, no nighttime snacks, right? We really want to make sure that your body can get into a, a parasympathetic drive for sleeping. We know that if you eat within two hours of going to bed, then there's a competition and you don't quite get into that parasympathetic response we want for good sleep architecture. Okay, so no food a couple hours before bed, prioritizing protein throughout the day, and coming back to what you said earlier, no fasting. So right. it seems quite clear that what you're saying um, for for Alex to optimize her physiology and get the, the most out of her time spent in, in training, that she shouldn't be doing so in a fasted state. Correct. Correct. And if she's like, wait, I heard about intermittent fasting. It's like, well, we can look at it as that 12 hour window where you don't eat after dinner mm -hmm. and then you have breakfast or you have your, um, your protein before you go to the gym. Cause then your body's going to get that time period where I can't say the literature supports it cause it doesn't support it in women, but from the buzzwords of media where you're going to get to the advantages of fasting, but we just call it normal eating. Right. And is it just protein that, she should focus on prior to that training session would would any athlete if also think about carbohydrates okay so so it depends on the modality of the training yeah 
if it's going to be any kind of cardiovascular, we need 30 to 40 grams with that of carbohydrate with that protein. Women don't eat enough carbohydrates in general because there's this big fear of carbohydrate and we need to have carbohydrate availability. Um, one, because then that helps with hitting intensities and adaptation. Two, it feeds the brain, keeps the brain happy going, hey, there's nutrition coming in. Um, yeah, and that also feeds forward to helping keep out of low energy availability when we have a lot of carbohydrate availability. How does Alex kind of keep track of of her energy availability? You know, uh, she could, I guess, count calories, but I mean, let's just say she's not wanting to count calories. How does she know if she's fueling herself enough for her training? So if we look at the snack before training and having a real meal after, that is the biggest start because then you're getting to the hypothalamus that we have nutrition to come in to support that stress. Um, and then we want to make sure that she's eating carbohydrate and protein at every meal, right? When we start looking at adaptations to training, if she's not finding there's adaptations happening after about a month, if she's starting to put on a little bit of belly fat, then we know that she's eating enough. So then we revisit and go, okay, well, let's see uh, what kind of carbohydrates you're eating. We know that you're on point with protein, but let's dial it in a little bit more. Alex has come across a little bit of information on social media about low carbohydrate diets, maybe the ketogenic diet, and that perhaps helping her lean up. How do you feel about low carbohydrate diets for a woman? And, and perhaps we can split that and say a woman who is primarily doing strength training versus a woman who is doing primarily um, cardiovascular, high intensity type training. I'm not a fan of low carbohydrate diets, just full stop. Um, so again, when we're looking at the literature about low carb, high fat ketogenic diets, the population is either obese postmenopausal women or male athletes or sedentary men. So when we look at the recreational female athlete or just female athlete in general, there is no data to support it. When we look at the literature about carbohydrate availability and how having adequate carbohydrates prevents illness and injury, helps improve adaptation, then we can make that uh, kind of a priority. And we also know that in the luteal phase where your body isn't so kind of, of releasing carbohydrate for training, you need to supply it. You need to have a higher amount of carbohydrate coming in in the luteal phase in order to actually do the training that you want to do, regardless of if it's strength or, or if it's aerobic. So it's that, that baseline of, of carbohydrate. It's like carbohydrates are good. I'm not saying refined white bread. I'm saying, you know, complex carbs, fruit, veg, grains. You can have your sourdough bread, you know. Don't be afraid of it because your body needs it and loves it and uses it. So – Nutrition for Alex might change a little bit through through the cycle. And and what about total calories? With the, is there a period or a phase during the menstrual cycle where she may be eating more calories? Yeah, again in the luteal phase, because the goal of progesterone when it's released is to create a very lush endometrial lining. So you're building tissue, you're shuttling carbohydrate away from the liver and the muscle into the endometrium. Progesterone is responsible for breaking down 
lean mass to supply amino acids again to build the tissue. So this is why I said earlier, there's about a 12% increase in your protein needs and you need to supply more carbohydrate if you want to hit any kind of intensities, but also for that competition between liver, muscle, and endometrium. We know that it's around 150 calories for a 60 kilo woman. That's so it's not a lot of increase, but women are so, I can't eat anymore. You know, I have this set amount that I can only eat. And again, we're not algorithms and our baseline needs change across the menstrual cycle and also change according to what kind of training we're doing. Which again, kind of highlights the importance of understanding where your physiology is at, at a particular moment and, and doing the, di- the diary and, and sort of knowing where you are in your cycle at any point in time. Um, yes. What about particular nutrients or micronutrients someone of Alex's age and, and sort of lifestyle and what she's trying to achieve, um, you know, short, I guess, of like deficiencies and gaps and just plugging gaps in the diet. Are there, are there any like particular nutrients that are especially important for her to, to consider either through specific foods or through supplementation? Creatine mm-hmm. for one. Um, and not high doses like the bodybuilding, Um, loading aspect we know three to five grams total a day is really beneficial not only for muscle performance but also for brain health and cognition Uh, women have around 70 percent of the stores that men do partially from actually being able to store it but also because they tend to eat less foods that have creatine in it so if we're looking at supplementation it helps with mood it helps with performance helps with recovery and repair if she's someone that is on the borderline of anemia has low iron but falls in the normal range so her doctor won't do anything about it then we know that if we're supplementing with iron every other day starting day one of the period leading up to ovulation that improves iron absorption because again that works with uh, the way hepcidin responses are so hepcidin inhibits iron absorption lowest during the follicular phase and starts to come up because inflammatory responses after ovulation. So if you're trying to just get a little bit higher than the low end of normal, then we want to supplement every other day starting day one of the period. Those would be the two big ones that we like, okay, this is what we want you to do. We can also look at um, downgrading in infl- inflammation in the luteal phase by having more vitamin D and of course, you know, looking for more um, omega-3 fatty acids that helps with that inflammatory response. Um, yeah, so ideally through food, but you can't really get the creatine and the iron that you want when you're looking at trying to go above and beyond what food can supply. Is there an iron supplement or dose that you that you like i appreciate it it could be quite individual depending on someone's results yeah we look at carboxyl iron um and we try to have just like the baseline of the 40 milligrams of elemental iron from carboxyl iron you can buy that over the counter that's a standard dose that you can get in the chemist um and it's not that expensive, but it's highly bioavailable and it doesn't cause all the side effects of constipation and gut rot and that kind of stuff you get with a lot of iron supplements. Okay. And you mentioned creatine and I guess as a kind of side note to that could probably be even more important if someone's following a vegetarian style diet with less animal foods and and has less creatine in their diet at, at baseline. 
Yes. Um, and there is some research that speaks to that. What about other ergogenic supplements? So things like beta alanine or caffeine. Um, I guess, you know, potentially you could even include protein powder in this bucket. Um, how do you feel about these different supplements for for a woman? Um, protein powder, you know, you use it because you can't eat enough or it's easy. So yeah, add that in your cadre of things to help support your nutrition. We look at caffeine. It's not really a, a sex difference thing. It becomes a responder thing. We know from a genetic aspect, you can have fast responders, slow responders, and then people who have an allele of both don't respond at all. So that becomes more of an individual thing. Um, when we look at beta alanine, we look at beet juice. There hasn't been any robust studies done on women. We know a little bit about nitrates from um, some work done in Canada looking at premenopausal women, where it doesn't really have an effect with regards to increasing VO2 capacity, aerobic capacity. But we do see effect in late peri, early postmenopausal women when they start to have less vessel compliance. So that's interesting. It's a it's more of a life stage approach for supplementation. We look at beta alanine. Um, there is definitely efficacy for it, but there, again, there hasn't been any robust studies to use it. So we look at it as like an acute dose instead of a chronic loading effect. So if she's going in and she has a competition of sorts and she wants to be able to hit that PR, then boosting a little bit of beta alanine is definitely going to help her. Mm-hmm. And what about herbs or adaptogenics or, you know, quote unquote, superfood powders? You see these things marketed um, all the time. Is there any anything within this sort of um, area that could help optimize Alex's hormone profile for best results? I'm a fan of adaptogens but specifically looking at what a person needs. So if Alex tends to have more estrogen dominance type responses. So she gets a lot of bloating. She has bad PMS, um, starts to have some skin breakouts, has a lot of mood changes. Then we're like, okay, well, we know that there's a misstep between your estrogen progesterone ratio. So I'm going to put you on DIM. And DIM is really not an adaptogen, but it's the... It's like eating 17 heads of cauliflower a day, which you wouldn't do. So if you're taking 200 milligrams of DIM, it helps with estrogen metabolism and stabilizes things. If she is someone who is tired but wired, so has that sympathetic drive, then we look at using ashwagandha or rhodiola to kind of work with cortisol to downgrade the sensitivity of the body to cortisol and help bring up that parasympathetic response. Uh, again, it's individual, but there are really only nine true adaptogens that have been robustly tested, peer-reviewed. You can get them on off the NIH website under the Complementary Alternative Medicine, or you can go to the Mayo Clinic website, and it has like the professional scope, the layman's scope. Um, so there is some efficacy for using things like maca for um, hormonal control, DEM definitely, rhodiola, ashwagandha. The contraindication for ashwagandha is if you have thyroid effects because it can stimulate your thyroid. So just being aware of that. Then we look at the medicinal mushrooms. So we see reishi has a good effect if you're cycling it in and out. It helps with stress and parasympathetic response. Um, Cordyceps, there's not a lot of efficacy for women with regards to sports performance, but it is beneficial for downgrading stress. 
So again, it works like ashagonda. So those would be the ones that would be more independent, but there is good efficacy to use it within women. Okay. Well, there's a few there for people to to look up and explore. What do you think about female uh, bodybuilders using androgenic compounds? I know that this has become, I guess, yeah. a little bit popular in the bodybuilding scene um, from conversations that I've I've had. What are the, the pros and cons of this? Because when I think about, from a male point of view, the research that I've looked at anyway, this can affect things like fertility, sperm quality, sperm production. Um, what do we need to be thinking of here from from female physiology point of view? Uh, same aspects really with regards to fertility and endocrine health, um, because if you're getting a high dose of androgens, then the conversion estradiol to testosterone, that becomes a misstep as well. Uh, we start to see a lot of uh, side effects as if a woman has PCOS. So we see increased insulin resistance, we see uh, increased inflammation, we see weight gain, not muscle weight gain, but more abdominal fat, visceral fat gain. And those are not reversible, really, when we look at it. You have to really dive in and get some more hormonal balance and change up training and nutrition to really help offset some of those side effects that come from it. Mm -hmm. So what could a, a, a woman do if, let's say, for example, her goal is just to put on as much muscle as possible. She's into bodybuilding. So hyp yep. hypertrophy is her goal. She doesn't yep. want to turn to these androgenic compounds. She wants to uh, have a child later in life, wants to optimize her fertility and not do anything that may jeopardize that, you know, um, short of just getting into the gym and being on point with the resistance training and having the volume and the stimulus there, is there anything that we uh, haven't discussed that she could do to sort of further optimize her hormone profile from a hypertrophy standpoint? One, eating. We know that women who are in bodybuilding set can really eke out between three and 3.3 grams per kilo of protein without any kind of side effect, like ill side effect. So this, this research has been recently done in the past couple of years, like there's no negative health effects for going that high. Um, parsing it up as well, like you would throughout the day. So you're not having one massive, huge bolus. And the other thing um, is not being on an oral contraceptive pill but using an IUD. So we look at oral contraceptive pill depends on the dose of estrogen and the generation of progestin. Um, oh, I can say that if there's a high dose of estrogen, that can be a little bit of an anabolic response, but it's very, very rare to find a oral contraceptive pill that has a 30 microgram dose of estradiol with a progestin that is also androgenic. Most of the time it counters. So oral contraceptive pill, I don't have any of my power lifters use it. I got them all off it and they're now on an IUD for more regular cycle control or having uh, no cycles. You're still naturally cycling, but you don't necessarily have a bleed. So you have better control over your training and still track your cycles. Um, but you do get a little bit more of a hormone kind of control because the ratio of progesterone to estrogen um, is moderated by the small amount of progestin that's in the IUD. Mm -hmm. How does WADA feel about some of this stuff? I'm sure they've looked at, you know, is there a competitive advantage if you're, if you um, are using IUD? They haven't. 
Interesting. Their big concern right now is the transgendered conversation. Mm -hmm. And we also know that most women who are competing Olympic level or comm games level, most of them are, have some kind of indication of PCOS. Because if you have PCOS, you have higher androgenic capacity, higher testosterone. Um, so that's kind of a conversation that WADA is staying out of. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Would any of this uh, nutrition or exercise advice or recommendations for someone like Alex change if she was taking oral contraception or had IUD and, and wasn't having these fluctuations, um, these natural fluctuations in her, in her hormones, what would change with regards to that sort of exercise program in particular that we went through? Yeah, so with an IUD, she'll still be naturally cycling. So we know that after six months of insertion, she'll ovulate again. Um, up to that point, it's as if she's in the follicular phase, so low hormone. Um, and then she can keep track of where she is in her cycle by using basal body temperature or using an over-counter luteinizing hormone, you know, ovulation predictor kit. So you can dial it in that way and train. When you're looking at oral contraceptive pill, um, it completely downregulates your ovarian hormones. So you aren't actually producing your own estrogen, progesterone, you're all pill dependent. And what we found in research is that if you look at the way the hormones start to increase across the active pill phases, first you have a spike of your hormone daily and a dip. So if you're going to do any kind of training, especially if you're looking for lean mass gain, you want to do it opposite of when you take your pill. So if you take your pill in the morning, you want to train in the evening because that's when the hormones are lowest. Mm -hmm. uh, when we look across the big scope, we know that the first week of the active pill is akin to being in the follicular phase of the natural cycle with regards to intensity, recovery, power adaptation, speed adaptation. The second and third week, you have this accumulation of these hormones. So it is very difficult to recover well unless you are planning in more days to recover. So we look at that as being more luteal phase where we're looking at maybe not so much high intensity, trying to work um, more aerobically, looking at hypertrophy. And then day two of the placebo pill or the withdrawal bleed, boom, back as if you were in the follicular phase. So the follicular phase is actually book ending the active pill phase. So you do have to scope it a little bit where you're doing hard training through withdrawal phase into the first active pill. And then the two weeks of, uh, or week two and week three of the active pill pack, you really have to look carefully at your recovery because for each subsequent day you're on the pill and these pills increase circulating hormone, the less that you can recover. Is there any information around sort of use of oral contraception and how this could affect a, a woman's hormone profile later in life, for example, through perimenopause or menopause, and then how that may, um, you know, affect her sort of uh, fat deposition or her um, ability to get hypertrophy and strength um, gains in the gym. Yeah. So when we look at the endocrinology research, so I sit in a working group with a couple of endocrinologists that really specialize in this. And I asked that same question. I was like, I have a lot of women who are afraid to come off the pill because of fertility, fat gain, what's going on there? What are the risks? And they're like, 
you know, after three months, everything should fall back into normal. If they had an issue before and they got put on a pill because of that issue, that issue is going to come back. But with regards to fertility, with regards to mobilization of fat, none of that really hap- or is permanently changed. But if we look at how long someone is on an OC, so if they get put on it when they're 15 and they're using it all the way up through their reproductive years, the training history and how their body comp has been influenced by their training, their nutrition, and the effects of that oral contraceptive pill are still going to be there once they come off the pill, right? So then when we start looking at what's happening in perimenopause, they're having these hormone flux. A lot of women will be like, do I use hormone replacement therapy? What's going on? I don't know what to do. Um, a lot of women will then go on an IUD because that extra dose of progesterone really helps mitigate the hormone flux. Mm-hmm. Um, so then they can take charge of, okay, I really need to do power training and I need to do some sprint interval work to slow down these changes. I need to really start to build that lean mass because if I don't, then I'm going to lose it. It's really, really hard for women to build and keep lean mass when they get into the late forties and beyond. So if we're looking at oral contraceptive pill use. There isn't any long-term effect, but we have to look at that training history and what's happening when they're on it. And then when we get into perimenopause and postmenopause, early postmenopause, we have to look at changing training and nutrition to work with the fact that hormones aren't there to help with lean mass development, to help with bone density. So we have to find an external stress that's going to stimulate the body to adapt as if those hormones were still there. And what a beautiful segue that is. You did it, <laughs> did it for me. Let's talk about Naomi, 60-year-old woman, post-menopause. And, and we can, I think, bring in perimenopause into this conversation as well. I appreciate there's probably um, listeners who are interested in, in that phase as well. But Naomi is uh, 60 years old and she has low bone mineral density Now, she's not taking HRT, and the reason for that is she has a history of breast cancer and was told it's contraindicated. Now, she's gained a little bit of weight around the midsection despite doing regular exercise and um, is eating sort of quote-unquote clean most of the time. Um, Not a big drinker. Um, Again, I've based this off comments and and messages that I've received. Um, She has two or three glasses of wine a week. Um, she's unable to run that hurts her knees a bit but she can cycle walk and lifts weights and her main goal is to improve her bone mineral density she Mm -hmm. was told that would be a good idea and her mother has had several fractures Um, and she would also really like to lose some belly fat and of course stay cancer free um, which she's now been for three years so that's the profile that we're considering here you just mentioned then it gets really really hard to sort of lose weight, build strength as someone goes starts going through perimenopause and then into postmenopause. Why is that? During perimenopause, because there is a shift in the estrogen progesterone ratios, um, there tends to be less and less progesterone that is being produced because there's more and more in ovulatory cycles. So we have a down regulation of not only our progesterone receptors, but also some of our estradiol receptors because progesterone is not countering estradiol. So there's not as much of a stimulation. The other thing is there's a massive shift in gut microbiome. So when we're looking at natural hormones and how they are activated, we have 
first the hepatic response where the hormones go to the liver, get bound by your sex hormone binding globulin, get excreted in the bile into the intestines and the gut bugs there unbind it and shoot it back out into the system where then your sex hormones work. When you stop having as much estrogen and progesterone, then you don't have as much coming into the gut. So then you don't have as many of those gut bugs that are going to increase the diversity. We see an increase in the amount of firmicutes, which is the gut bugs that are responsible for obesity and visceral fat gain, and a decrease in the bacteriotes that's responsible for lean mass and, and um, I guess general health, they say. So when we're looking at body composition shift, we see that it is a affect of less response of these um, estrogen progesterone receptors, as well as a change in the gut microbiome. Um, we see one of the first telling signs is women will lose power and strength. And they're like, what's going on? I still have lean mass, what's going on? Because estrogen, not only is it responsible for stimulating your satellite cell for lean mass development, but it is tightly tied to myosin. So myosin and actin, you know, myosin is a strong bond it's for a muscle contraction. If you don't have estrogen or you have different doses of estrogen, that myosin is going to have a strong bond with actin. So we start to lose, you know, strength and power. The other is it is directly affected or directly affects how much acetylcholine is being stored in the vesicles in the gap junction. So you have less estrogen, you have less acetylcholine. So then you have less of a neuromuscular response for actually stimulating those muscle fibers for a contraction. So this is another reason why women start to lose lean mass. And when we look at the general recommendations of 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity, two of them resistance training, that's like the opposite of what women in perimenopause and postmenopause should be doing. Mm -hmm. So Here with, me, I saw your face. Yeah, with, <laughs> with and I want to go into to exactly what you would recommend for women during these phases. But based on what you just said then about estrogen, and so in, I appreciate um, in this kind of avatar, I mentioned that Naomi is not taking HRT. Yep. But would you say that HRT makes it um, easier to maintain strength and lose weight? No. So when we look at what people are using for menopause hormone therapy, you can have microdized doses, which then sort of has a hepatic response, but it's only 25% bioavailable as compared to what your body's naturally producing. So what I want people to understand about hormone replacement, it's not really hormone replacement, it's menopause hormone therapy. It is a therapy. And we know there's a really fantastic efficacy for people who are having significant issues and symptoms that interfere with daily life. So we see mood swings, hot flashes, night sweats, poor sleep, um, vaginal dryness, all of those things. When it comes down to body composition, it doesn't have a true effect. We see it slows down the rate of change, but it doesn't stop the change. We see that it can be used as a therapy to slow down the rate of bone mineral loss, but it is not a treatment mm -hmm. for osteoporosis. So there's this misconception really circulating about hormone therapy and the immediate response is every woman in perimenopause should go on it. But in reality, it is an individual thing. And we have to look at the fact that those people who are shouting that from the rooftops are not looking at nutrition and exercise. So when I said earlier, we look at an external stress to apply to the body that's going to create an adaptation. So when we look at Naomi and she can't use hormone therapy, that's sweet. She doesn't have to, because we can look at 
power training, right? And again, it's relative. What is heavy lifting to a 60-year-old? If she's never lifted 15 kilo barbell, that's probably heavy to her, right? So we look at implementing that power-based stuff. And there's been some really fantastic studies that have looked at 70 and 80-year-old women who ditch the hypertrophy 10 to 12 rep range and actually get into the 70 to 80% one rep max and doing the six to eight. Not only do they increase their lean mass, they improve their bone density and proprioception. So their falls risk decreases. So this is what we're looking at when we're looking at women who are postmenopause. So it's not just about body composition. It's like, okay, if this is what's happening when you're 60, we also want to look forward to 70, 80, 90. How are we going to keep your quality of life? Resistance training is the critical factor here. Not only do we see it as the stimulus for central nervous system to kick in, without the use of estrogen. So if we're lifting heavy loads, then the central nervous system is going, oh gosh, we got to have more acetylcholine. We have to have strong bond. We got to do something here because you know, what used to work isn't working for us. So we have a really strong response in that power training. We develop the lean mass, we get the power, we get the strength. Mm -hmm. We also have feed forward to brain health. So I don't know um, if you've talked to Louisa Nicola at all. Haven't and yet. She's done I know her. I'm, yeah. I'm actually connecting with her in Sydney in, I think, six weeks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's fun. Um, but she's pointed a lot of really cool research out to me about the benefits of resistance training and the neural growth factor in the brain. So we know aerobic training is good for volume of the brain, but the neural growth factor is good at attenuating Alzheimer's risk. So if we look at what's happening with brain changes at the onset of menopause, we see a lot of brain changes and can be attenuated with resistance training. So if we look at Naomi, I'm going to be like, okay, you know what? We're not going to look at that 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity, because if you get into that moderate intensity, it's going to increase your sympathetic drive. It's going to increase your baseline cortisol, and it's not going to do anything with regards to recomping your body. You're not going to increase your lean mass. You're not going to decrease the cereal fat. You're not going to improve your bone density. We have to look at resistance training being the cornerstone of everything you do with some true sprint interval training. Interesting. So just so that people are across what you're saying there, when you're talking about sort of moderate intensity continuous training, we're talking about a slow steady state jog or sitting on a stationary bike and kind of heart rate at 100, uh, 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 sorry, about 60%, 65% of max heart rate. Um, yeah. And while that's where I guess general population recommendations may be to get that 150 minutes in of that moderate intensity you're saying we can do better and for absolutely for for a woman who is in both perimenopause and postmenopause we should rethink mm -hmm. what that looks like focus more on resistance training and high intensity so let's go through that um, I think it might sound uh for lack of a better word, counterintuitive for a postmenopausal woman to select a weight where they're only doing six reps. I think a lot of the time what I see is very small weights and doing very high rep, you know, 20, 30s, and I think that's considered safer or um, – yeah, that's a conf you know, it's that social confound because no one wants to see their grandma in the gym lifting heavy weights and doing deadlifts, right? Because mm -hmm. it's just not in the mental scope. 
But from a physiological perspective, when they're doing that high rep, the 20, 30, it's a metabolic stress that puts them in that moderate intensity. It's not going to stimulate lean mass gain. It's going to stimulate that visceral fat. You might get a little bit of muscle tone, but it's not strength. Because that, again, is all about breaking down things, and we don't want to do that. And I'm not telling people who are peri- and postmenopause to immediately go in the gym and do a 100-kilo deadlift. We phase people in. We get them comfortable. We want them to move well first. We want to find their anomalies. If you have osteoporosis, you know, we look at having support. So we might use a Smith's machine instead of a, just a, a plain rack, right? So we're looking at what are the anomalies? What are the movement limitations? And then we have to apply load once we learn your mechanics to move well. Um, and then when we talk about like bone mineral density, resistance training significantly helps with that, right? We see the load, we see the multi-directional stress from resistance training improves bone mineral density. Walking doesn't do it. It's not a multi-directional stress. Running doesn't do it. It's not a multi-directional stress. The two biggest things for helping with bone density is resistance training and jump training. So maybe you're, um, you know, jump roping as a warm up. So you're getting that multi multi-directional stress through the bone that is going to stimulate bone growth and density. So running, not, not it. And so when you tell people, okay, let go on a moderate intensity walk, I'm like, no, if you're a guy that helps with cardiovascular health, but for a woman, it doesn't, it's not a high enough dose to instigate better vascular compliance nor is it a strong enough stress to recomp the body, nor is it a strong enough stress to create any kind of lean mass and strength development. So Naomi wants to recomp. She wants to try and shift a little bit of that belly fat. How much time does she need to dedicate to an exercise regime? And what would it look like? You mentioned resistance training and HIIT being the priorities, but what would that, or what may that look like over a kind of seven day period um, she can do something every day. Um, you know, let's say she has forty-five minutes to an hour a day. Whoa, she has a lot of mm. a lot of extra time because she doesn't need that much to work out. Okay, cool. And I say that because when we take away the menstrual cycle and we look basically back at sex differences, women's bodies again are very endurant. We don't need volume when we get into that postmenopause stage. So bodies very, very, very good at going long and slow and putting on fat. So we need something that is polarized from that. So resistance training, we say three when you feel more comfortable, preferably four resistance training sessions a week. Um, and then two to three true high intensity sessions. So one of the, like if I base it out, it's like one of my favorite workouts to get people to understand what I mean by lifting and true high resistance training is a buy-in where we look at a buy-in of 10 deadlifts at 75% and then immediately getting on an erg, either a cycling erg or a rowing erg and sprinting as hard as you can for the remainder of a minute. Then you have one full minute off, then you do it again and you do six rounds of that done and dusted 12 minutes total. So it's every, every minute, every other minute on the minute for the most part. And people are like, that's enough. I'm like, yes, if you're doing it right, that is enough. You're getting the loading from the deadlifts and you're getting the high intensity, true sprint interval training because you're trying to accumulate more meters or more distance every time you get on that erg. So you have six tries to get faster and faster. So it's that motivation to go full gas, knowing that you have a full minute of recovery. And people are like, what? No, I can't do that when I'm 60. I'm like, yes, you can. 
You've been mentally prepared that you can't through all the nuances of society telling you that when you hit menopause, you're frail and you're doomed to be fat and and just kind of a burden to society. But that's not true. It's not true at all. You're fully capable of doing this kind of work, but it's relative. Like that deadlift might be the bar. It might be two five kilo de- or barbells at the start, but it's the movement and that intensity that we're after. Right. I asked you this question earlier when we were talking about Alex, but in this kind of context here, when it comes to shifting the belly fat, how important is this training piece versus the nutrition piece? Uh, training is really important because we need that stimulus. We need that external loading. We need that stimulus to support the body because we don't have estrogen and progesterone. Nutrition does play a role as well because we know we can't out-exercise a bad diet. So then when we look at nutrition, protein super, super important in peri- and postmenopause, probably more so than premenopausal because we have uh, anabolic resistance as we get older. So it takes more protein to get that effect. So we look post-exercise protein for women who are pairing post-menopause is at 40 gram dose, as opposed to what we generally hear of a 25, 30 gram dose, because we need more for that tipping point. Um, And regular protein across the day is so important. And we find that it's really difficult for older people to eat that much protein because they're, you know, I'm not hungry, but we really push that protein and good carbohydrate from fruit and veg for that gut diversity. So we match those two together and we start to see significant change. And is fasting still a no-no? Do you still like the sort of 15 gram protein prior to a training session in the morning? Yep. Especially early postmenopausal women because they already have a higher baseline level of cortisol. So they're already in that sympathetic drive. They already have the predisposition for putting on visceral fat. So we need that protein. We need the hypothalamus to be like, oh, okay, yep, there's some stuff coming in. I'm good. I don't have to have the signals to put in that extra abdominal fat. Mm-hmm. And is there or are there any supplements or particular nutrients or uh, herbs or adaptogens that would be different to what we spoke about earlier that may be more relevant during this period of life? Uh, so I... I'm going to say creatine again, Mm -hmm. especially now when we're looking at brain changes and brain health. Um, Three to five grams. Yep, three to five grams daily. And then depending on how stressed she is, right, uh, I really try to get people to use ashwagandha when they're in this early postmenopause phase just to really try to get them out of that sympathetic drive that's new um, and really relearn that parasympathetic. I can also pull a lot on Huberman's non-sleep deep rest, which I think is yoga nidra for the first part, and implement that as well. Anything that gets that parasympathetic drive is going to help with body recomp, as well as getting that really significant sympathetic response downgraded. Mm -hmm. Regarding that body recomp, does Naomi need to be in a calorie deficit to shift the belly weight or with the right training and nutrition can the body composition just change without being in a kind of calorie deficit per se? Yeah. So 
Unfortunately, the automatic response when people start to hit peri and postmenopause and they're putting on the weight is calories in, calories out. I need to be in a calorie deficit. But then this leads people to being in low energy availability and, and red S. Yes, the metabolism does slow down a little bit when you hit postmenopause, but we can counter that with protein intake. So it's not about calorie deficit as it is about macronutrient redistribution. So we're looking at that higher amount of protein, a little bit lower amount of carbohydrate and good amount of fat. So instead of hitting uh, about 40% of calories coming from carbohydrate, we're dropping it down to about 35 and we're having protein really up there hitting that two grams per kilogram of body weight um, because we want a lot of fruit and veg for that gut diversity is super important because we've had that shift in perimenopause, but we need that protein. Mm -hmm. We need that protein for lots of body functions as well as lean mass. We haven't spoken about dietary fat much, but how important are, are fats within this discussion as well, both, I guess, for Alex and Naomi? You know, some people are perhaps scared of eating fat, thinking that fat will make them fat. How, what's your view on 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 that and um, what sort of advice would you have for both Alex and Naomi here? Uh, yeah, so fat, I think so many women are afraid of it from the 90s of, you know, high carb, low fat. But when we look at fat, it's really important. It's good for our myelin sheath, brain health. It's good for satiation. We look at it as a good means for our gut microbiome. Um, and we want to look at it as plant and a little bit of animal fat. Like, don't be afraid of it. It's really beneficial and it's necessary. Wow. This has been a, a real masterclass, Stacey. I really appreciate your time. I've taken up, I think, over two hours now. I did have a, a lot of questions about hydration. So I think perhaps we'll, we'll have to get you back um, if you're willing to come back and we can do a dedicated episode on, on all things hydration. Is there anything that you sure. feel like we, we missed or you didn't get a chance to expand on related to the topics that we covered today that you wanted to add before we wind this up? Uh, not really. I mean, I like to close things with telling women that they should be empowered and they should look at their own physiology and use that wherever they are in their life to their advantage. Instead of being told what to do, you take that ownership and understand it, then you can make things work for you. I think that's a lot of the miscommunication, like in the fitness industry of this is what you need to do, but they're not looking at who the person is and how that might be not right according to where they are in their life or where they are in their menstrual cycle. Well said. And and looking forward, what, what questions remain related to, to exercise and nutrition specific to women that you would like to, to investigate or be involved in or you'd like to see others look at? Uh, gosh, kind of redo everything, but I'm really interested in this dose-response thing we're finding. Um I want to get into and really understand what is optimal dose for women who are pre-menopause, if they're on a pill or not on a pill, and then early versus post or early post and late post-menopause. Mm -hmm. So regards to building lean mass, cardiovascular function, we're finding like late post-menopause needs a higher dose, but is it intensity? Is it volume? We don't know yet. So it's that dose response across the lifespan, I think would be very beneficial for a lot of coaches and athletes and women themselves to understand.
So we can start changing protocols when we understand that dose-response relationship. Mm -hmm. Stacey, this has been incredibly informative. Um, I'm super grateful for your time, as I know our listeners will be too. Um, Thank you so much. Where can people find you online to learn more about your work, your online courses that I know that you have, and to stay up to date with everything that you're doing? Uh, Of course, social media, Instagram, um, Dr. Stacey Sims, and then our website is Dr. Dr. Stacey, S-T-A-C-Y Sims, and that has kind of everything, all the courses, all the publications I've done. Um, You can sign up for our newsletter and get our free blog, and we have a topic every two weeks that really digs into it. Always looking for feedback, um, trying to figure out what is the most misconception out there that people want kind of busting be fun to do i know that you've done some myth busting before that would be fun to do yeah yeah i'm still trying to work out how I, how i feel about doing that but um brilliant thanks again oh, stacy it's, it's good yeah i appreciate <laughs> thanks, your time Simon. it's been fun yeah let's do it again soon cheers thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation i hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive if you did and you'd like to show your support for the show please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a comment on the YouTube videos or a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take notes of these comments when planning for future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.